Now would you please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us here today in our study. And also our friends in Arco, Idaho. We are so glad that you are with us there at First Baptist Church at Arco, Idaho. And also the hangar in Montana. Uh, we are so glad that you are joining us uh, for our study here as well. The title of this morning's study, this being Fourth of July weekend, is Biblical Reflections on America's Birthday. And we're going to be looking, part one is this morning, part two is tonight at five o'clock at the Hub at the Claremont campus on the biblical foundations of our nation. Now this is going to be bittersweet. It's going to be sweet because it's so inspirational to realize the biblical foundation and grounding of our nation, but it will be bitter as well because we'll realize just how far we have drifted. And yet it'll be encouraging as well. Because if we have been there once as a nation, we can go back there once again. You know, for some reason, as I was praying about this, the Lord brought this verse to mind, which doesn't apply to a nation. It applies to a family. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and in the end, he'll not depart from it. And this is something that parents uh, hang on to for dear life. Well, just somehow the Holy Spirit applied it to our nation. Raise up a nation in the way it should go, and in the end, it will not depart from it. In the same way, we have seen the answered prayer of children and grandchildren coming back to God after years of drifting. Could it be that in the same way, raise up a nation in the way it should go? And in the end, it'll not depart. Could our nation come back to God in the same way our, the prodigal son came back to God, the way our prodigals in our life have come back to God? Could we see through our prayers and, and setting our church on fire as we just sang, uh, Lord, set our church on fire, turn our nation back? We could see this in our lifetime, and we can pray for that. And yet as we go through this material, I know that it's going to have a bitter side to it because we're going to realize just how far we have drifted. You know, considering just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage across America, and just to see the reasoning behind that probably is the most troubling thing of all. Uh, Peter Torrey, our executive uh, pastor, one of the things he gets to do in his scintillating job is read Supreme Court decisions line by line and study them word by word. And I'm so glad he does that on our behalf. And he, uh, he sent me this portion of the majority opinion by uh, Supreme Court Justice Kennedy. The right to marry is fundamental as a matter of history and tradition. But rights come not from ancient sources alone. And he's referring to the Bible. He says they rise too from a better informed understanding of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains urgent in our own era. Think of that. Not from ancient sources alone, but also from a better informed understanding. You know what that's code for? Is that sometimes we get smarter than God over time. And our reason, we come to God's word and we say, well, this just seems out of date. And my mind is a better informed understanding. And so my mind now is my final authority rather than God's word being my final authority. And therefore, we make certain decisions on that basis. Now, of course, this is a dangerous time for religious liberty and religious freedom. And I want you to know, the Bible says that as we proclaim Christ, we are to be harmless as doves, but also wise as serpents. And I want you to know that we as our leadership are being very careful in this. And Peter Torrey, our executive pastor, he is uh, flying out to Nashville, Tennessee in a couple of weeks to meet with executive pastors from across the nation and to meet with the top legal minds in our country, some of the top legal minds in our country today, to plot a path of protection 
for our church and other churches uh, across the country. And so I just want you to know that we are taking this seriously and we will do everything we can to defend and to protect our church uh, spiritually with regard to our religious liberties. But let me also be optimistic and to say that I believe there is great opportunity in this as well. Eric Holmstrom, our high school pastor, sent me this article this past week uh, from the Washington Post. And it was an opinion piece by Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the title was, Why the Church Should Neither Cave Nor Panic About the Decision on on Gay Marriage. I just want to read a part of it. He says, as I write this, the Supreme Court has handed down what will be the Roe versus Wade of marriage. Roe versus Wade legalizing abortion uh, across the country uh, years ago. Redefining marriage in all 50 states. This is a sober moment, and I am a conscientious dissenter from this ruling. The court now has disregarded thousands of years of definition of the most foundational unit of society, and the cultural changes here will be broad and deep. So how should the church respond? First of all, the church should not panic. The Supreme Court can do many things, but the Supreme Court cannot get Jesus back in that tomb. Jesus of Nazareth is still alive. He's still calling the universe toward his kingdom. Moreover, while this decision will, I believe, ultimately hurt many people and families and civilization itself, the gospel doesn't need, quote, family values to flourish. In fact, the church often thrives when it is in sharp contrast to the cultures around it. This was the case in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and Rome, which held to marriage views out of step with the scriptures. This gives the church an opportunity to do what Jesus called us to do with our marriages in the first place, to serve as a light in a dark place. Permanent, stable marriages with families with both a mother and a father may well make us seem freakish in 21st century culture. We should not fear that. We believe stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is alive and will show up in the eastern skies on a horse. We believe that the gospel can forgive sinners like us and make us sons and daughters. Let's embrace the sort of freakishness that saves. Let's also recognize that if we're right about marriage, and I believe we are, many people will be disappointed in getting what they want. Let me repeat that phrase. Many people will be disappointed in getting what they want. Many of our neighbors believe that a redefined concept of marriage will simply expand the institution. And let's be honest, many will want to keep on expanding it. Just this week, I saw lawsuits that have been placed with regard to polygamy and expanding it next into polygamy. And I believe that's the next step, and then there will be others to follow. This will not do so. The church must prepare for the refugees from the sexual revolution. We must prepare for those who, like the sexually wayward woman at the well of Samaria, who will be thirsting for water, of which they don't even know. And if you study the history of the early church, you will find that in the early church, one of the great growth engines was people fleeing the sexual revolution and the sexual mores and culture of the Greco-Roman world of the first century AD. And we need to be prepared as well to lovingly, graciously receive those who seek refuge from the storm around us in the name of Jesus And all God's family said, amen. Now, Abraham Lincoln warned us of these days. In the middle of the Civil War, he 
declared a national day of prayer uh, for all Americans, and he acknowledged that the Civil War was God's judgment on America for her sins. He says, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. And so Abraham Lincoln warned us that we have forgotten God. So what I want to do with our remaining minutes is to remember from whence we came. To, rather than forget, to remember the biblical foundation of our country. President John Quincy Adam wrote, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. The first and almost the only book deserving such universal recommendation is the Bible. President Andrew Jackson said, it, the Bible, is the rock on which our republic rests. Uh, do, you, do you notice the, the, conflict, the, the conflict there between the two, or the contrast between the two? A better informed understanding. What do we choose to make the rock of our republic? A, quote, better informed understanding, our human reason, our minds, or do we make God's word, the Bible, the rock on which our republic rests? President Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible is the best gift God has given to men. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. Isn't that interesting? When we forget it, we lose our compass. We lose our way. And with God's word, we can discern right and wrong. But once we forget and ignore God's word, now we no longer have our compass that can help us navigate between right and wrong. President Woodrow Wilson writes, America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. President Ronald Reagan wrote, of the many influences that have shaped the United States of America into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. The Bible and its teachings help form the basis for the founding fathers' abiding belief in the inalienable rights of the individual, rights which they found implicit in the Bible's teaching of the inherent worth and dignity of each individual. Now, the founders of our nation saw a parallel between Israel's birth as a nation being rescued out of bondage from Pharaoh and Egypt. They saw a parallel between that and our own rescue. They compared Pharaoh to King George III of England because he was so stubborn in not letting his people go in the same way Pharaoh was stubborn in not letting his people go and compared the British Empire to the Egyptians and we uh, were the Israelites. And so they said that that day when they came out of Egypt through the Red Sea after the Passover and Moses said to commemorate that day in the same way we should remember July 4th, 1776 and remember from whence we came and how God delivered us and formed us as a nation. Exodus 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day. Commemorate this day. He's talking there about the Passover and the passage through the Red Sea. But our founding fathers and mothers said, remember July 4, 1776, as also that day. The day you came out of Egypt, 
out of the land of slavery because the Lord brought you out of it with his mighty hand. Uh, The early founders of our country saw it as absolutely a miracle that this little colony, uh, brand new by world standards, could dislodge itself, could gain its independence from the biggest military force in the history of the world. The British Empire was the greatest empire and the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And it was miraculous that America gained her independence from that. Verse 9, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Patrick Henry, in one of his great speeches from this time period, reminded them of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire which guided the children of Israel and he believed had guided our nation as well. Of the water gushing from the rock at Horeb in the same way God had provided for our needs. Of the miraculous passage of the Red Sea in the same way it was a miracle that we gained our independence and that God was still strong to deliver and mighty to save. Uh, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson were uh, delegated by the Continental Congress after the Declaration of Independence to come up with a seal that would characterize the spirit of this new nation. And you'll see that seal there behind me. Um, Benjamin Franklin said that it should include Moses lifting up his wand or his rod and dividing the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his chariot overwhelmed with the waters. And this motto should be around the side, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And like I mentioned before, that they believe that King George III, uh, even in his stubbornness to let my people go, even after uh, the Battle of uh, Yorktown in 1781, when we won the final battle against the British, which, by the way, was on the soil of the state of Virginia. I just thought you ought to know that. The Battle of Yorktown, 1781. And even after that defeat, King George still stubbornly would not sign Uh, the papers to release the United States of America. And so in his stubbornness, they compared that to Pharaoh. And in the Egyptians wanting to hold on to them, they compared that to the British. And we were the Israelites. Let my people go. Thomas Jefferson uh, also said in the seal, the children of Israel in the wilderness led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, can I just do a little aside about Thomas Jefferson? And I'm going to get more into this tonight. But I just want to say a little bit about him. Because I want to confess to you publicly that I have said wrong things about a fellow Virginian. And I want to repent of my sin uh, here uh, uh, to you. I have to admit, I bought into the contemporary thinking. You know, critics of Christianity and of the foundation, they love to point to Jefferson and say he was the exception to the rule. They'll admit that most people were followers of Christ and on-fire Christians that started our country. But they'll say, but Jefferson was the one exception. And that is absolutely untrue. He was very much a committed Christian. Now, he had some unusual views. We would not want Thomas Jefferson writing our statement of faith for our church, okay? He had some unusual views. But by and large, he was a very committed follower of Christ. And there's this myth of the Jefferson Bible. And, and, it, and it doesn't exist. It, it is a myth. And I've perpetrated that myth. I use it as an example of how supposedly with a pen knife in hand, Thomas Jefferson went through the Bible and cut out all the parts he didn't like and held on to the parts that he did like. Do you know that that is just not true? Where the myth comes from, it does come from reality. 
It comes from a couple of books. One I'll talk about this morning and one this evening. But one of the books was called, and he would not even call them Bibles. He would be appalled that we would even refer to them as Bibles. But they were books. One was called The Philosophy of Jesus Being an Abridgment of the New Testament for the Use of Native Americans. Basically, what it was was not a Bible at all. It was an easy-to-read Bible that would serve as an easy-to-read introduction of Christianity to Native Americans. It was basically a missions document, kind of like we would use the message or the living Bible that would be easier for people to read. In the same way, this was a Bible that was, it was kind of like a red-letter edition. How many of you have Bibles where the sayings of Jesus are in red letter, okay? Well, that's basically what it was. It was a red-letter edition of the Bible where it was primarily the sayings of Jesus But it wasn't just the sayings of Jesus. People will say, oh, well, he didn't believe in the miraculous. He didn't believe in the supernatural. He just believed in the teachings of Jesus as a good person. Absolutely untrue. This edition of the Bible, which was a simpler edition for missions and outreach and evangelism to Native Americans, it included many of the miracles of Jesus. It had complete supernatural material in it. It had Jesus talking about hell and talking about heaven and talking about eternal life, and talking about the resurrection. This was not a non-supernatural Bible. It was simply a simpler Bible for use of reaching uh, Native Americans with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like I said, tonight I'll talk about another one uh, that is similar uh, in that way that he used for his own purposes to reach people uh, for Christ. And so again, I repent of those things I have said about Thomas Jefferson in the past. Now as you go on to the next page of your study outline, There was also a warning in this comparison to the Egyptians and Pharaoh and let my people go. There was also a warning in it. And what they said is, and it's tragic when you look back on our history, we came very, very close to getting rid of slavery right from the beginning when we formed our nation. We we came very close to giving freedom to everybody, and we just didn't have the political will to do it. And you think of the tragedy of the Civil War, all the heartache and the tragedy and the death and the bloodshed and the destruction that could have been avoided if we had just had the political courage to do it uh, from the very beginning. And so when we failed to do that, there was a warning from many that we would become the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. We claim to be the Israelites getting freedom from King George III and the British Empire. But if we fail to free everybody at the start of our new nation, then we would become Pharaoh. We would become the Egyptians who would not let God's people go. And we would have the judgment of God fall on us as we believe it fell on the British Empire for not releasing us. There was a warning in this. Elias Boudinot of New Jersey, which Cheryl Gardner, Pastor Randy's wife, informed me. uh, She and Peter Torrey have worked for this organization in the past. I believe that the American Bible Society uh, was founded by Elias Boudinot. He's the one that started the American Bible Society, which was the oldest and one of the biggest Bible societies in in all of world history. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more tonight. But here's what he warned us at that time. It is true that the Egyptians held the Israelites in bondage for 400 years. But gentlemen cannot forget the consequences that followed. They were delivered by a strong hand and stretched out arm. And it ought to be remembered that the almighty power that accomplished their deliverance is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And maybe we see the British Empire uh, today and yesterday as being Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But if we fail to free everybody, we will become the Egyptians and Pharaoh of the future, and God's judgment will fall on us. 
And that's exactly what happened in the Civil War. You know, it's interesting to read that during the Civil War people period, people understood this as a God's judgment on our nation for the sin, the terrible, evil sin of, of slavery. Abraham Lincoln himself saw it as God's judgment on us. Reverend Henry Highland Garnett, February 12, 1865, Congress ended uh, nationally slavery with the 13th Amendment. And he was the pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He was the first African-American that was asked by Congress to address Congress. And here's what he said in that message. Moses, the greatest of all lawgivers and legislators, said, while his face was yet radiant with the light of Sinai, whoso stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. The destroying angel has gone forth through this land to execute the fearful penalties of God's broken law. And so it's a reminder to us that, uh, and we'll talk about this more tonight, that a nation, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And the same righteousness that may exalt us as a nation our sin can also condemn us and bring us down and bring on us the judgment of God as we saw in our nation's history. Now to go in a different direction. Psalm 91 is called the soldier's psalm. And you'll see why as we read through the psalm together. It's, it's especially precious to soldiers in battlefield. But it's precious for all Christians that are involved in spiritual warfare. And I want you, as I read this psalm, I want you to think of something in your life that you're afraid of or something in your life that worries you, or something in your life that is a danger to you. And, and maybe the reason God invited you here this morning is just with that particular thing, to, to have this particular psalm applied to that particular thing that you're afraid of uh, in your life. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked." If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me. And I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, if that's the soldier's psalm, the one that it applied to probably more than anybody in, in history was George Washington. Uh, he was referred to during his uh, lifetime as the soldier who could not die. And Americans, generally across the colonies, applied Psalm 91 to George Washington. There are many examples. Let me just give you a couple. In the French and Indian War, 1753 to 1763, it was basically the Americans and the English against the French and their Native American allies. In 1755, a young 23-year-old Colonel Washington 
brought 100 Virginians to join forces with General Edward Braddock and his 1,300 British troops. Do you notice that? 100 Virginians was as strong as 1,300 British troops. I just thought I'd point that out. Um, For the purpose, just kidding, to push the French out of western Pennsylvania. Um, They walked in the steep ravine, a wooded ravine. They walked directly into a waiting ambush. And over the next two hours, 714 of them, half of them, over half of them were shot down with only 30 of the French and Indians shot down. Of the 86 British and American officers in the battle, 62 were either killed or wounded. George Washington was the only mounted officer on a horse not shot down off of his horse. General Braddock died and Washington took command at the age of 23 as a general. Uh, Washington had made requests for military chaplains and they had been refused by the governor of Virginia. So he made himself the role of military chaplain. He personally conducted funeral services for the troops. He read scriptures. He offered prayers. His family had been told that everybody had been killed in the ambush. And so he wrote his family and said that he had survived, quote, by the miraculous care of providence. Reverend Samuel Davies, who was the greatest preacher in America at this time, uh, preached a sermon about the unknown Washington. He was a 23-year-old colonel, now turned general. Nobody knew about him. But everybody heard this story about how he had supernaturally been spared. And in his sermon, he said, Providence has hitherto preserved him for some important service to his country. He said prophetically that there's something about this guy that God preserved him. He must have some service to his country in his future. Fifteen years later, in 1770, an old Indian chief traveled miles to meet George Washington. And he had been in that same battle 15 years before, but he told Washington his perspective from the French and Indian side of what Washington knew from the British and the American side. He said, I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. They had a council fire together, and he told him his side of the, of the battle. He said he ordered his braves to single out officers and to shoot them down. Washington had been specifically targeted. Now, this Indian chief had never missed with his rifle. He had always, anybody he shot at got hit with his rifle in all of his battles. He personally fired 17 times at George Washington and missed every time. He finally concluded that Washington was under the care of the Great Spirit. He stopped shooting and he told his braves to stop shooting because they were wasting ammunition uh, trying to shoot at this guy. Uh, He told Washington that he had come, quote, to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and he who can never die in battle. There was another Indian chief, Red Hawk. He also had never missed shooting in battle. He missed several times after shooting at Washington, and so he too ceased firing because he was convinced that the Great Spirit was protecting him. Another example is 1779 at the Battle of Brandywine. A British major, Patrick Ferguson, he was a renowned rifle shot, and he was the head of the British sharpshooters. And so he took three of his snipers into the woods, and they came across a soldier on horseback at point-blank range. He, they, he prepared to shoot, got him in his sights. He had his three other snipers. They all, four of them, had their guns right on him. And, and, and all of a sudden, he had never had this happen in battle before. He had this overwhelming feeling of disgust that he should not shoot this soldier. All of a sudden, the thought of shooting this one soldier disgusted him. He locked eyes with the soldier, and after a few moments, the guy on horseback slowly turned his horse 
deliberately showed his full back exposed to him and calmly cantered away. Uh, Ferguson said, I could have lodged a half a dozen balls in him before he was out of my reach, but I let him live. He found out later that the soldier had been George Washington. And an early historian, Lyman Draper, writes, had Washington fallen, it is difficult to calculate its probable effect upon the result of the struggle of the American people. This singular impulse of Ferguson illustrates in a forcible manner the overruling hand of providence in directing the operation of a man's mind when he himself is least aware of it. Probably the most powerful example of our biblical foundation is in the education of our children uh, in the early years of our nation. They truly believe Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And the first American textbook was called the New England Primer. It was produced in Boston in 1690. And children in American schools used this from 1690 into the 1930s, which just sounds crazy to me that it was that recent. 1690 into the 1930s. Now, as you, you see the list there in your study outline, you'll see that some things are different. For example, the I's and the J's became indecisive. You couldn't even tell the difference between them because of the loops that they had. So they kind of merged the I and the J and also the U and, and, and the V. But just look through some of these. These were the biblical basis for the alphabet within this New England primer. A, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. B, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. C, come unto Christ, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and he'll give you rest. D, the deluge drowned the earth around. E, Elijah hid by ravens fed. F, the judgment made Felix afraid. And maybe for your quiet time before you go to bed tonight or this afternoon, look up these passages to know the stories uh, behind these. But the kids would have known these stories. They would have known the stories behind uh, the alphabet here and the scriptural stories. G, as runs the glass, our life doth pass. H, my book and heart must never part. I, which is actually J, combined. Job feels the rod, yet blesses God. K, proud Korah's troop was swallowed up. L, Lot fled to Zoar, saw fiery shower on Sodom poor. M, Moses was he who Israel's host led through the sea. And Noah did view the old world anew. Oh, young Obadiah, David, Josiah, all were pious. P, Peter denied his Lord and cried. Q, Queen Esther sues and saves the Jews. R, young pious Ruth left all for truth. S, young Samuel dear, the Lord did fear. T, young Timothy learnt sin to fly. U, Vashti for pride was set aside. W, whales in the sea, God's voice obey. X, Xerxes did die, and so must I. So, even the X is hard to come up with. You know, you got to struggle there. Y, while youth do cheer, death may be near. Z, Zacchaeus, he did climb the tree, our Lord to see. It's sweet, but it's bitter, isn't it? How far we have drifted. But if we have drifted, it means we can come back. And so I want to close our time with a time of prayer for America. Um, I want to use the ACTS formula, A-C-T-S. A, adoration. I want to spend some time just worshiping God. C, confession. 
confessing our personal sins, but confessing our national sins. You know, this is something we don't do much anymore. But it was very prevalent early in the history of America to confess our national sins, even as we confess our individual sins. A-C-T, thanksgiving. Let's give thanks to God personally and for what we have within our nation and the blessings of our nation. Then S, supplication. Let's pray for our nation according to 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Our land needs healing, doesn't it? And we can pray for that right now. So let's go before the Lord and let's start with A and just have a moment of uh, worshiping God. Now let's spend some time in confession. Let's confess our personal sins and let's confess our national sins. A-C, now T. Let's give thanks for God's blessings and for the blessings that come from living in this wonderful nation of ours. And now let's pray for our nation. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and I will hear from heaven, answer their prayer, forgive their sin, heal their land. Let's pray for our nation.
All these things we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. Let's stand for our benediction. The prayer room is open. If you'd like prayer for anything, our prayer team, our prayer partners are right here off the main floor. And they would just love to pray uh, with and, and, and for you. Uh, also tonight, if you like this kind of thing, you can tell I enjoy it. Uh, tonight uh, at the Hub at 5 o'clock at our Claremont campus, we'll do part two. We'll look at more of our biblical foundation, particularly the verse, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people and how the nation was built on that. I'll share a verse of the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, that I bet you didn't even know existed. I'm going to give you a biblical tour through Washington, D.C., and then the tragic story of uh, Benedict Arnold. Now, you say, Glenn, it would be unpatriotic to be there because our women are playing for the World Cup championship uh, during that time. Well, that's why God created DVRs. That's why he made them for for such a time as this. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.